0: It's not just about this quote-unquote product, this end result. It's the working of it. It's the moving through it. What you learn about yourself, what you learn about your family and your community, and what you learn about humanity as a whole, through the process of making this shit.
1: This is for everyone who is far away from home, but close to it at the same time. Diaspora Babes is the art you make, the art you love, and the arc of justice. We are brown, queer, struggling, thriving, too much, too loved, and too loving. My name is Amal. I'm a Yemeni-Lebanese artist currently living in Paris, and this is Diaspora Babes' Love Letters to Myself and You. Dear Diaspora Babe. Today I invite you to join me in the Parisian Café for a conversation with Brooklyn-based artist and filmmaker, Jatavia Gary. It was a series of unforeseen circumstances and coincidences that led me to the Frank Elbaz Gallery for the opening of Jatavia's show, Tactile Cosmologies. But once I was there, I knew I had to approach her to see if she would... Let me interview her for this podcast and she was incredibly generous enough to give me some time at a cafe on the following monday it is my goal to be able to speak as compellingly as eloquently and as mesmerizingly as jatavia speaks about her work and i hope that this conversation conveys the power both of her presence and of her work i don't have a microphone yet and the audio quality isn't as good as i hoped it would be however i hope that you take the ambient noise and the background busyness as part of the conceit of this happening in the world i hope that listening to this transports you to that parisian cafe with us two together, and helps you realize that this conversation isn't happening in the isolated bubble of a podcast, but in conversation with the world. And I hope you take some of the things that you hear, babe, and bring them into your worlds. All my love, Amal. I started the interview by asking, what's a recent turning point or epiphany that you've had in your creative practice?
0: Wow, this one is actually really difficult because it's it's something that my mother used to always kind of harp on when I was younger, Um, but like my time management skills. I know that doesn't sound very like deep or it's very practical, you know. Um, Usually, you know, I've been struggling with resources, but I have this fellowship now that really blessed me with resources Um, and that kind of framework, a structure to work with. Mm. But my time, you know, my time, I'm realizing that I'm not the best manager of you know time, and I think it goes back to being, <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, but you know, like CPT time, color people's mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. being black and having this different, this very kind of non-traditional grasp of the temporal space. And my work is very much interested in kind of disturbing a temporal linearity. We're going backwards, we're going forward. So I know this sounds kind of weird, but like my grasp on time is actually really Continuous. you know, I never really know what day or time it is and it's kind of reflecting itself in my work and it's something that I need to kind of I don't want to make admonish myself too harshly but you know with a certain level of growth comes new responsibilities and I feel like if I want to continue to blossom, then this is something that I'm going to have to kind of get under control, right? So it's a new epiphany, a very practical one about how I work. It's like a kind of message from the universe about growing. You know, you want to grow more, you have to be a little bit more disciplined around certain areas that you thought were not that deep, right, you thought, you know, I'm a kind of a fairy and I think it's cool to not be so attached and tethered to very concrete ideas of time and space. And it works for me, it works in the, in the work. Doesn't always work in the world. <laughs> yes. But it's
1: so cool that you started off really coming in hard with that talk about time because that was actually one of the really big things that I noticed when I saw your show Tactile Cosmologies at the mm-hmm. Freak Albaz Gallery here. And so it's a three screen kind of installation. Mm-hmm. Just with the who haven't seen it. And the three videos like are projected yeah, on different walls and the same clip will end up moving mm-hmm. to the different walls. And so especially since it's around the viewer, it really to me feels like you're thinking about circular time as
0: opposed to linear time? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm thinking firstly about making sure that the space is immersive. So like when I first when first people first came in, they were standing to the very back wall so they could see all three screens. And you know, at one point I began to walk around the space like kind of push or encourage them to move in so that they can be kind of surrounded by the three of them and they weren't standing back and trying to look to the left and to the right and to the middle at the same time, but be in it, right? But yes, I'm very interested in cyclical time, And it has a lot to do with the kind of black American jazz aesthetic, the blues aesthetic. Um, things are repeated often in the music. I come from the southern black church, so in gospel music you have a repeated refrain often. You're going back to a like a repeated phrase that you might say, or a repeated break, a repeated beat. Um, It's looping, it's circular and so I think about my work almost like this when I'm structuring something, when I'm structuring a film I start with music or sound first and then there's always kind of repeated segments we are interweaving sequences together so you might see something very similar at a later time you might start off with something like for example me in the garden and then like maybe 15 to 20 minutes later we're back in the garden but something else is happening now so basically this piece tactile cosmologies has five sequences and they're interwoven together i've broken the sequences up into smaller pieces i interweave them almost like a textile because to me it's not about linearity it's about how the work kind of Hmm how the word breathes in a natural way, right? To me, a circular or cyc- cyclical movement is more natural yeah. and feels more organic to me than say linearity, A, B, C, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. You can find a beginning and a middle and the end in the piece, but it's not a kind of distinct point on the map, right? Mm-hmm. things are all over the place. Mm-hmm. The beginning is coming twice the end is happening three times, mm-hmm. right? The middle is at the beginning, you know? So, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of approaching an experimental aesthetic with the work that kind of harkens back to my, you know, growing up in the church, this, these traditions.
1: Where else you see this cyclical time emerging in your life or in other parts of your
0: practice? Well, you know, I'm a woman, so. <laughs> I'm gender non-conforming, but people, I allow people to call me she, I identify as a woman. In women's I feel like women's lives are just a series of cycles. So that's one way I very much feel my womanhood and my feminist, my womanness, even though I kind of I have a shaved head and sometimes I feel very much like a boy, you know? But I definitely feel my womanness. In fact at the beginning of the film there are these at the beginning and the end of the film there's these animations. They repeat. It's a lot of water imagery. Yeah. You saw the Great Lakes, you saw the Niagara Falls, you saw the Atlantic Ocean, you saw the Mississippi River. And on top of this imagery, I'm etching Adinko symbols, but also symbols like fish or a machete or a diamond. Some of the Adinko symbols were the, was a Dwafe, which means beauty and femininity. So I'm referencing these two goddesses, these Orisha, Yemaya and Oshun.
1: Sorry.
0: Yemaya and Oshun. These are my two heads. These are the women, the goddesses that guide my life. Mm. I'm the daughter of two waters, it is called. so. And my spiritual tradition. Yemaya has my head, but I must also acknowledge Oshun. So this opening, it's a kind of experimental animation with these etchings and the water and the paint. And there's a music, a sound. It's a gospel song called, How Can I Lose? Hmm. How, can yeah, how can I lose, lose with the help that I've got? that's what she's saying her name is shirley and uh taylor and so to me this is an offering and you see it begins and it ends the film this is another kind of cycle so i'm interested in kind of making sure that i make space for the feminine in the work for the divine feminine in the work it's very important because this is the help that i move through the world with it's not just me it's kind of ancestral help Mm. in my life The ancestors are venerated because of my spiritual traditions, but also just because of who I am. I'm very interested in the past, interested in my own family lineage, so this is another way of thinking backwards, of thinking, you know, from the past and how to move forward.
1: The last person I interviewed, who works in Brooklyn as well, Mm -hmm. um, she said that art only exists as a social relation. That's Mm. something she asserted. And so I was wondering, what other relations form your creative practice besides the ones that you just mentioned?
0: Well, you know, I would say the main one would be power relations. Mm. I'm really fascinated by power, how power is maintained, how power is usurped, how power is accumulated. Um, So I'm always assessing this in my own life, be my positionality as a black woman. What is my power in whatever relationship I am negotiating? And whether it be a very personal one or a kind of larger collective one, how I find myself within the collective. And also it shapes the way I make my films. You know, I assert a black feminine uh, subjective space, right? So this is me attempting to reclaim power from the traditional, you know, white male, dominant space of making films, particularly both fiction and non-fiction films. I would say that power relations are always at play in my work. Black women are centered in the work. So we're thinking about, of course, you know, gender, uh, race, sexuality, how violence plays a part based on where you are positioned in society, how uh, power structures your life, whether you are lacking it or, you know, whether you are attempting to make some a move to, to gain personal power, collective power. So I would say that, I think that all relationships have a power dynamic and many of them are, they go unexplored because we don't wanna, we don't wanna think about that. We wanna think that we're all on even ground. But I feel like for somebody like me, who's been undermined <laughs> from the get-go it, it's a constant negotiation both in the work and in my personal life, I feel like. In an ecstatic
1: experience, which is one of your older works, Mm -hmm. ecstatic comes from the word ecstasis, which is a Greek Mm -hmm. root, and it means to stand outside oneself. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder Mm -hmm. what you think about the relationship between the personal and the collective in your work.
0: Mm. You've got some really good questions. Thank you. It's funny, I love that you got the etymological, you know, definition because that's very much what I was thinking about. You know, it wasn't a kind of sensual or sexual well sensual, yes, but sexual, no. When people think of ecstasy they think of all sorts of things. But it was very much you know, about being as we would say in the self beside oneself, meaning outside of one's normative you know, state. So whether that is entranced or, you know, the Holy Ghost or fueled by so much anger that you're ready to smash a cop's car. That's what that was about. You know, this, this other state, this kind of numinous, otherworldly moment where you are literally outside of oneself. Um, but in terms of the collective. That's interesting. Well, I'm really obsessed with, there's a really amazing black feminist scholar, her name is Hortense Spillers. She is a professor at Vanderbilt University. She's like a very venerable, venerated thinker, black woman thinker. Um, And she, in fact, the, the name Tactile Cosmologies comes from a paper that she wrote called Intimate Shades of Intimacy. So she mentions tactile cosmology, she's talking about touch, she's talking about the haptic power and uh, over one's own body mm. and how touch is a marker of this. Back in the 19th century as black women we could not ward off another's touch. Mm. Right, We were open and available flesh and how that kind of maintains in many aspects today. So Spillers also talks a lot about this, this concept of the intramural, the mm. interior mm. and I see this as multiple ways. I see this as the interior of A black person's mind, right? Our interior space, our psychological and emotional space, but I also see this as the interior of the black community. So like what happens when we shift our focus away from what white folks are doing, right? Because whiteness is gonna white, right? What happens when we come here and we start thinking about the chasms that exist between each other? in ourselves when we focus on the interior where we sweep our own front porch as my auntie likes to say mm-hmm. so whether there's the chasm between men and women whether there's the chasm between straight folks and queer folks the chasm between the older generation and the younger generation the chasm between light and dark black people the chasm between able-bodied and quote-unquote disabled people what happens if we focus in on that, right? On the intramural, right? Of course, we will have to deal with what's happening outside of the intramural, right? We, we don't want to continue to be massacred, right? Uh, by the systems that govern us. But what I think there's so much power in focusing in on getting ourselves together, right? Yes. What, what would it look like if black people in America were their own separate country and they decided to kind of turn their back Right, on what's happening, you know, in the larger context, the larger American context, and thought about blackness first and foremost, and healing blackness, healing these generations old wounds. So this is one way I'm always thinking about the personal and the the collective, right? Because I'm very much interested in the interior, black interiority. It's deep. There's so many layers to it, but it gets flattened by traditional media. It's it flattened by Hollywood films. It gets flattened by the news. We become tropes. But when you really think about who we are, there's so many layers, so many multitudes. And that's why the work is always focused on the interior life of black people, the interior life of black women. So I'm I'm interested in what's happening inside, whether that be the collective intramural or the singular individual mind, right? The work is often about, you know, psychoanalysis, psychological. I'm doing an imprint of my psychological mind state with each film, right? You're, You're seeing where I'm at. You're seeing how I feel. The internal upheaval or maybe the moments of serenity, the moments of deep reflection and contemplation, you're seeing that in the work. My, my dream, my goal, right, my ideas of true liberation is when Black people have decided that, you know, our focus will not be on how to get an ally to do this, that, and the third, uh, but how can we begin to make ourselves and our families and our communities start where you are? How can that be the priority in terms of real revolution, real shifting, the way you talk about
1: the chasm and this relationship between the chasm, I almost visually, I almost see what you're describing as people standing around like a cavern or deep mm-hmm. cavern and looking at themselves like in a circle across mm-hmm. that, which reminds me again of the cyclical time that we're talking about, this circle. Mm-hmm. One of the things I understood you to say is that the relationship between the personal and the collective is fractal, right? There's the
0: interior
1: wound or chasm, and there's the intramural or collective. Yeah, yeah,
0: Yeah. I think we have to really think about how our lived experiences are so interrelated. (laughs) Like Mm
1: -hmm. I use flower bouquets and arrangements as a metaphor for diaspora. Mm I noticed in the Giverny project, which was also showed a little bit at Tactile Cosmologies, the way you're focused on this lush botanica. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering how you see the role of botanica and greenery in your Mm. work.
0: Yeah, so I found myself in that garden in 2016, the Monet garden. I had a residency at Terra, Um, so I was two months there in northern France at a very, very small it's not even a city, they call it a commune, Giverny, it's super small. You only have the museum, the garden there, you have the estate, a couple of Airbnbs or actual BNBs, you know. And I was really, I was torn. I was having a really weird time, a kind of out-of-body experience there. Because, you know, of course I was the only black person <laughs> for like 500 miles or some shit, maybe like 20 miles. And it was so posh. And you know, I like nice things, but I'm I'm a, from a working class family from the American South. So it was great to experience this, but it was also kind of a mindfuck, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, at the same time, I'm seeing, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, like basically social media, and I'm seeing the violence continue to erupt in, you know, the States. It was a very intense summer, t- summer 2016. You had Philando Castile murdered. You had um, Alton Sterling murdered. There was a Pulse nightclub shooting where like 53 queer people were, you know, gunned down. And then I'm also hearing about this immigration crisis because in Europe you're hearing about their version of it. So votes are capsizing. So I'm just kind of being assaulted with, you know, stories and imagery of death and destruction that comes from, of course, colonialism, that comes from... You know, white supremacist violence, state violence, which is white supremacist violence, capitalism, all of the forms, you know, these axes of power that Bell Hooks talks about. All of this shit is, you know, showing itself and revealing itself. And here I am in juvenile having an eight course meal. So there, there was a dissonance, you know, I very much felt my, um, Du Bois talks about double consciousness, you know, it felt like it was quadruple, like I was seeing myself from so many different angles and so many different experiences, Um, and it kind of was fracturing my mind a little bit, you know. But I would go, I would retreat to certain parts of the space. There's an orchard behind Butler, which you see me in, in in tactile cosmologies, in the, the juvenile document piece. And so I would take a sanctuary there, because I really needed to get away from... The group activities, the kind of collected moments that we were having and kind of being pushed to have. <laughs> yes. I met some really nice people there, some really good friends who I still keep in touch with, but it's also really difficult because I seem like I'm an extrovert, but I'm actually an introvert. I need, you know, days on end alone. I don't need to be, you know, in people's faces kicking all the time. It may seem like it, but that's just, you know, a performance. Is should we have to do to get by? Should I learn as a kid that's, you know, a defense mechanism that I still kind of have? I actually really need to be alone. Yeah. So I found that space, you know, in not in the juvenile, not in Moni's garden, but in the other space, the butler yeah. space. Um, and So I would just go there, kind of write, yeah. smoke out a little bit, journal, um, make voice notes on my phone. But, and then I began to film, finally, because I was depressed yeah. most of the time. But I began to film towards the last month I was there. So they of course allowed me access to the actual garden when no one was there. So I used it as a set I decided, oh, I'm, I know what I'm going to do. No one is here. They allowed me to go in when no one was there, which is amazing. And I have a theatrical background. I used to be an actor.
1: I heard. Yeah, and
0: so I was like, you know what? I'm going to use this. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to be a character. Her name is going to be the Negress. And I'm going to express how I feel in this space. And you know what? The moment I walked in, I was like, I need to release a scream in this motherfucker. And it felt so placid, so beautiful, and bucolic, and serene. And it, it was man-made. It felt like it was built on top of, like, the bones of somebody, right? Or the blood of somebody. And I fucks with Monet. I understand he's a quote-unquote master. I understand the beauty of the paintings and, you know, the radicalness of his art at that time. His work was considered quite, you know, daring, right? People were not fucking with it at first. I actually find a sort of link between our work, right? My cuts are like brush strokes. They're sharp, they're staccato, they are not clean. It's not conventional Hollywood edit. It is considered daring. It's considered a bit rough around the edges. So in many ways, I, I see a kinship in terms of the art practice with him. But you know, he's an, he's an old white man with money. He had enough money to make a man-made fucking garden, right? So what does that mean, you know, in terms of like, his positionality and his power, which I'm always interrogating. Also, you know, that space wasn't made for the likes of me. There were models who would come, um, but they were never like this. They were never a bald-headed black woman with big hips and flat feet, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not, and so I felt for me, putting myself in that space was a kind of political action. Um, An unruly body is, you know, is, is coming into this space and making it hers. From their point of view is it a tainting um is it a you know takeover from my point of view um there's so many ways to read this body being in, in this space and being in the center of the frame i'm not serving some lily white woman who's laid out on the grass i'm not at the end of the frame the edge of the frame i'm in the motherfucking frame running back and forth i'm screaming but my scream is trapped I'm smoking, I disrobe at one point. Um, So I'm transgressing that space. It's very important for me to transgress that space and not simply enjoy the luxury, right? Because the Negress is a captive as well, right? Um, So I see, I'm also thinking about like in art history, you know how women's bodies are often metaphors for the land and the landscape. Um, So you see drone strikes happening in the Giverny document and there's a moment where Fred Hampton is a black panther, he talks about Negro imperialism, right? Uh, he's like, you've got to be, black people have to be careful uh, about how we ascend to power because then you'll have a Negro imperialist. If you don't have any politi- political education, you'll end up mimicking the behavior of your oppressor, right? So I've got drone strikes that come from the Obama administration, right? <laughs> because yeah. if you're not careful, You'll get into you'll get into power, and you'll just carry out your orders. You won't get in there, and you won't move against um, American imperialism or American militarism. It'll be, you know, just like they never left. You know, <laughs> so. To me, I was just thinking about also black people's um, very kind of difficult relationship with the land. I descend from enslaved black people and folks used to have farms, folks used to own plots of land, folks used to work the land, but what happens with slavery, what happens when you were forced to endure, you know, working sun up to sun down under these very harsh and extreme, you know, de- degrading conditions, with some shit that you don't own, right? There's no autonomy. Um, so after, you know, manumission after emancipation, black people attempted to, you know, reclaim a certain power, a sort of status, and certain ind- independence and individuality by. Accessing land or attempting to have access to land against all different forms of violence, right? Whether it's sharecropping or convict leasing, all of this shit that was happening post-emancipation that still rendered us, you know, second, third-class citizens. So, as a Southern Black person who is, who still feels very much disconnected from the land, this was me attempting to also think through through this: what does my body mean in relation to a land that is not mine, uh, as a displaced body? You know, here I am in France, um, but I am a black American but in America, am I considered actually American, you know? It's it's this kind of complicated layering uh, that really kind of questions ideas of belonging to, like, what land is my land? You know? Even if I'm able to have some semblance of success and I'm using the quotes, right? I, what do I own? What can I call mine? Where can I go and rest? You know, Where I don't feel like I'm some sort of spectacle and commodity oh, or machine capitalist yeah. production yeah.
1: Okay, cool. what does that mean you know
0: for a black femme body? <laughs> Okay. It's all very difficult questions.
1: Okay.
0: No, I have no answers. Like...
1: <laughs> one of the episodes I was talking about decolonizing one's practice and the whole idea of it's not the journey, or it's not the destination, it's the journey, which is one thing because I do have to imagine a destination as in like a more a just a just world, and just future. But I think it's the process of recommitting to those questions and recommitting to those practices. Mm.
0: Recommitting to the question. Yeah. Not feeling like you have to have the answer yeah because sometimes I feel like I do you know because people ask about the work but it really pisses me off because you know if I were a fucking mainstream star or a mainstream director or a pop star or whoever the fuck I would they don't answer questions about their work ever <laughs> of course they just it really pisses me off because you know like Donald Glover who made this video where he's murdering people I had questions I wanted to know what's going through your mind I enjoy having these conversations though, especially with young people, because they're rigorous. They're really thinking. Um, but it irks me that other artists don't have to they don't have to do any deep thinking if you're in the mainstream and you've got millions of dollars behind you. You've got a you know, somebody coming in doing the creative direction and the art direction and you're just kind of like, Yeah, sure, let's roll with it. But what's, what's the politics behind your shit? Mm. You know, what, what, is there a de, uh, decolonizing practice? Is there an imperative for that? Because I feel like a lot of folks who are saying, you know, they're on this black shit, this black power shit, but they're fucking, they're just caking up, really. That's really what it is. Um, I can't get too mad at them, especially if you grew up poor. But it's like, we can also interrogate one another. Can we also come together and reason? Can we talk? And you can't do that with like somebody who's a multimillionaire. You know, I don't have access to them. But oh, and we don't. You don't as a young person, right? So yeah, I don't know. But what was your question, girl? I'm sorry. Oh no, I, I hadn't even, I hadn't even formulated. <laughs> no, I'm just a going on I see you're working at
1: Harvard this coming year. My mentor slash old professor Al Perez is also going
0: to be there. the photographer. Yeah, I love Al. I haven't met them yet, but I know of them and their work a lot. The work is so tremendous, Um, but I haven't met them. I'm I'm dying to meet them and to have my photo taken. Huh? Yeah. their work is really fantastic. They're incredible. As a
1: yeah. teacher, mm. their pedag- pedagogical yeah. practice is um, phenomenal. Mm. Mm. One of the things that they told me that stuck with me is... We were doing a crit session with the photos and we were talking about the photos and I was like, I think it does this or that and they're like, you know, it's not, it's not about this, like it's really never about this. It's about, it's about you as an artist and you're like, I don't even remember the exact things they said, but the gist of it that I understood was that what we're doing here or any of the art, it's about you and your relationship or you and your journey rather. It's not about
0: this piece on the wall that someone can consume. Exactly. 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 And this is the hardest thing, I feel like, for a lot of folks to to really grapple with. And I know it has been for me, because it's really all about, it's great to finish the work. You know, I really struggled with this, and I'm working on an even larger project, a feature that we have been working on for years, like five years. The documentary? Yes. And so, you know, it's hard to not think that that doesn't matter, like the end result doesn't matter, but in reality it doesn't. You know, there are people who want to sell it. There are people who got given money to it. There are people who are ready to, you know, get what they can get out of it and cool, whatever. But in reality, it's about my development as a human being. And for the documentary, my relationship with my family members, who are the subjects, who are my collaborators ain't no documentary worth more than my relationship with my fucking mama or my dad you know or my brother and sister or my grandparents so it's just it's almost just like an, a medium a way of me and this is why i started it a way of me a, a way for me to try to understand myself and them and myself through them so yeah i, I would really echo what L told you it's not you know it's great to be able to make work i have I talk a lot of shit, you know, about life and, you know, it's tough for a black woman, and it is. But I'm so really blessed and privileged. I get to make work. You know, I've been an artist since I was a little girl. So now I get to be an artist as a grown person. You know how many people, that's not their reality? I get to make films. That's super privileged. And I'm a second-class citizen in America, but that's a a form of privilege. I'm at Harvard right now. That's privilege. It's it's shady and it's vile sometimes. (laughs) No tea, no shade, I'ma keep it 100. It's an institution built on fucking slave blood, you know, and slave money. So, but I am in an, a position of extreme privilege of being able to work through my humanity through a creative space. You know, like that is. I think I wake up and I thank Yemaya every day. You know, so I would agree. I would echo with what Elle is saying that it's it's not just about this quote unquote product, this end result. It's the working of it. It's the moving through it. What you learn about yourself, what you learn about your family and your community, and what you learn about humanity as a whole, through the process of making this shit. That's what's so wild. That's what's so crazy. What every documentary I've made is, I learn about. Like for example, Kicks to Kill Us. they performed at my school actually. So amazing. I love everything about them. A beautiful person, a consummate artist. Seeing them talk about their struggles as a young person, you know, there's a part in the film where they're talking about how they used to get made fun of and how it wasn't that big of a deal, but then, because they developed this really intense and highly sophisticated defense mechanism of, like, cracking on it, like, really the clap back is quick. The performance of it on it made me think about myself and made me think about the things that I have developed in order to survive, in order to make it through difficult situations and difficult moments in my life. So every collaborator or subject that I work with, even if it's archival clip, it teaches me something about myself. I'm able to realize something about who I am as a, as a person, mm-hmm. and I'm able to realize something about who we are, right? That sounds cheesy and corny, but it's real, it's like, you know, you're learning about humanity and reality, life, death, struggle, love, all of this shit is bound up in the creative process. To tie
1: that back to how we started the conversation, I really think that now Nothing bends time or reminds one that time is cyclical more than trauma, huh, but right. I think also growth as well. <laughs> right, that's true. Growth and connection because that love that you have for for people who are not here for ancestors or the love of your ancestors for you or the connections or relations you have among art is also the, the
0: bending of time as well. Exactly, yeah. The connections with the ancestors and the bending of time as well. I think it's highly cyclical, and one thing that I point to, like when I was younger in undergrad, when I studied abroad in Ghana, and a lot of a lot of Americans study abroad in Ghana. It's like our first kind of foray into Africa, right? And this was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. I went when I was maybe like 22. I w- I was late to undergrad because I dropped out, and I went back. And so in a con, it's either a con or a shanti, I'm going to get called out on this, um, but there is a concept called Sankupa. Uh, there's symbols associated with it. One looks like a bird that's turning around. And yeah. One looks like a kind of, almost like a weird fleur-de-lis. It means to go back and to pick up. Or to go back in order to go forward. And so, this is a kind of guiding principle, as cheesy as it sounds. I'm always interested in what happened. You know, not that I'm obsessed with the past, but I am. I'm obsessed with the past and, it, and it's functional in the way that it is functional. How can we use the past in order to make sure that we are not repeating ourselves? how can we use the past in order to have some sort of insight and understanding into who the ancestors were, the people who came before us, what they went through, what they did, um, how they excelled, how they stumbled. Um, so it's a guiding theme, it's a guiding principle. So I am constantly, I'm very obsessed with the past, whether it be you know, archival clips um, or a film about my family. Interviewing my grandmother and my grandfather. I want to know how they were as young people. I want to know about their marriage. I want to know their relationships with their children. I want to see if there's some repeated patterns that have been happening without us knowing. It's insight. You know, you know how Andrew Lord says anger is is important because it's insightful. Yes. So is this investigation into the past. And I think a lot of people are really right now focus on the future. You know, there's this whole Afro surreal afrofuturist yes. movement. I'm an actress realist in that I'm looking backwards and forwards, and now, mm, thinking about all of it, I'm not just focused on the future. If we only focus on the future and we have no concept of the past, we have no interest in learning about the past, then we're going to make some mistakes that we could have avoided. So yeah, I'm kind of, I'm obsessed, and it's, it's an obsession of mine. Yeah. The past is the future, which is now, which is the the present. There's a historian named John Henrik Clark. This is paraphrasing because I'm always fucking up a quote. But he's like what happened five minutes ago is directly connected to what happened five years ago, which is directly connected to what happened five thousand years ago. This is, you know, a continuum. And I think for my generation, and perhaps your generation, it feels like we're kind of popping up out of the ether. And in reality, we exist within a trajectory of a long continuum of people, places, events. And that's important to, to know and to understand.
1: One of the artists who also is based out of Boston
0: that I hope you'll connect to is Tamashi Jackson. Oh, I've connected with her. Good. Amazing artist. Yeah. Powerful. They're powerful. Presence is Incredible. <laughs> yes. They gave me this critique that just was such a turning point. Tamashi's turn. not a fucking <laughs> game. <laughs> no, they're not. They're not out here playing with these toes. When I <laughs> met Tamashi everyone when I when they found out I was going to Boston, people were like, Oh, you have to meet Tamashi. Mm-hmm. I heard this from like five different people. <laughs> well, six now. And then I went to an opening and there was Tamashi, uh, and there were a number of black women there, so it was an amazing time I was like, oh my god, I've been waiting <laughs> a black, you know, gender non-conforming femme identified folks. Um, and I was like, oh my god thank you Jesus, <laughs> because it was just a desert at first and then I go into the space and I see my friend Alexandria Smith, I see Charlotte Brathwaite who teaches at MIT I see Tamashi, I see Imani Izuri, and it's just like Okay, are we in Brooklyn or
1: what? Wait, I'm gonna look up Charlotte Bracewhite. Uh, is she director? Yeah. I think yeah. I, I, I acted in a play that she did at my school in um, yeah. Bull Rusher. Yeah, uh, they directed Bull Rusher at Williams College like when I was a freshman. And they also were a very powerful presence as well. Yes. Yeah. This is a question I'm still working on formulating. In the Giverni document, mm-hmm. you play the recording from Lando Castile's girlfriend mm-hmm. right when he was murdered. And Tamashi Jackson showed a piece at my school that it used the, only the audio as well yep. from the arrest and mm-hmm. assault of Sandra Bland. And it was superimposed over the abstract kind of color that makes the lexicon of Jackson's work. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering how you think of abstraction in your work and abstraction and its relationship to violence Mm -hmm. and encountering violence in art, I guess. Mm -hmm.
0: Sandra Perry is an amazing, she's an amazing artist that I really look up to. She's around, she's a contemporary of mine, and she says, abstraction is not neutral. And I think this is a really great reminder because I think a lot of people think that it is. You know, they think, oh, you know, there's no figure there, and you know, I'm kind of safe. Um, and for me, this clip that you're seeing, where you're hearing Diamond, you see Diamond, you never see Philando, you see the little girl, De-de, Um But whenever um, Philando's body was caught on her camera, you see flowers, Mm. these kind of I took flowers from the garden and I put them directly onto the film strip and I sometimes painted, sprayed a little paint on it and then I let them sit so there's mold growing so it seems like a decaying uh, flower, basically, or kind of microscopic. It's abstracted. A lot of people don't know that it's a flower, So people yeah, I are like, they have no, you know, petals, leaves, they don't know really, um, but to me it is more, I can't, I can't show a fucking dead Bloody, bleeding out, black body—it's—it's it's just not necessary for me. I, can't, I don't even—I don't want to see it. I don't think it's necessary for us to see it to understand the, the extreme, dire situation that Black people are, are in. And I think that's a lot of people's argument—that oh, we need to see this. Uh, we need to document this so that folks know. I think people already know. Um, I think the history of visualizing dead or suffering black bodies is a long one particularly in America the lynching postcards um, white folks used to give these as gifts they would send them to people Um, photos of charred hung black bodies being circulated they would take fingers they would take uh, genitalia tones you know, it shows just the depravity of of, of what we're up against, right? And that has not changed, right? People say we've made some sort of progress, but that in reality has not changed because you see these viral videos of black people being gunned down, murdered, attacked, assaulted by police, by citizens, and what have you. And folks feel like we need these for a sort of campaign to end the violence, but it hasn't done so. If anything, it is titillating a certain sector of the population, it's getting them off, they're really into it in fact. It's like that lynching photograph. So for me, I'm working directly against it. Uh, you have to, when you don't see this body, then you only hear the sound. And it's juxtaposed against me in this serene garden. And you see these flowers flittering across the screen at a rapid pace, and you hear her voice. You hear her pleading, you hear her praying, you hear her saying, no, this can't be true. You hear him moaning. Now you, as the vi- viewer, you have to do some work now you have to fill in the blank based on your position based on what you've seen with your own two eyes based on what you think in your mind and in your heart about black folks about yourself and your relation to black folks uh, about your relation to power and violence your own ideas around violence or ideas around the police you have to begin to it forces you to be an active viewer it's not just me handing you A lynching photo. Right? So you have to kind of do some work. And to me that's important for as a maker, it's important to have an active viewing audience, not some passive, you know, glazed over eyes, you expecting me to tell you how to feel. So I feel like when you know my technique and Tomashi's technique perhaps, it's really asking a lot of of the audience, and it's displacing or disrupting these traditional ways of these traditional ways of showing blackness on screen, right? So whoever is usually titillated is now not titillated. They might actually be even more disturbed. I showed Giverny one Nicolas Saint-Pérya, which is basically just a segment of me in the garden and the the video, the, yeah. the police video, or, or diamonds. Facebook live video. It's back and forth, back and forth. It's its own film. So it stands alone. Played at Rotterdam. It played in New Orleans. But I've embedded it into the Giverny document. So I played this in a room filled with black people. I went to LA. My friend Chico had a party. Shout out to Chico. She She's a filmmaker. She showed her work. I showed my work. Our friend Numa showed some of her work. And we just had a vibe. Black folks. Just nothing but black folks in the room. And I was sitting next to a man Uh, named Amen, and he's huge, tall, big, black man. As you can imagine how his life must be when he walks down the street. And the moment we go from the garden to the Diamond Reynolds Facebook video, he stiffened next to me because he was preparing himself Mm. to see somebody who looks like him being taken down to the ground, right? And I reach over, I put my hand on his hand, and I said, there's no, there's no dead bodies in this. You can relax, you're only going, you're only going to hear some things. And he kind of, you know, he breathes a little easier, but the work is still very difficult for people. And it's supposed to be, I'm not trying to re-trigger and re-traumatize, which is why you see no dead bodies, but I am trying to get you right here right where you can feel it. I do want to galvanize black people to be urgent, to think about the urgency of our situation. So I am going for the soft parts, right? And I want white folks. I'm not really concerned about them. I want to make sure they're not titillated by my work. The work is very much a direct dialogue between myself and other black people, specifically black women, most of the time, black queer people. But blackness as a as a collective, that's who I'm talking to. As Arthur Jaffa says, everybody else is eavesdropping. They're listening in. And I, we're allowing you to do so at the moment, <laughs> right? We're allowing that to happen. But I'm not centering what they like, right? So I am I made sure that, you know, we I don't think we need to re-traumatize in order to educate people. That's why I mentioned the Donald Glover video. Yeah. That really, it really fucked with me. And I like Donald Glover's show Atlanta. But that video, I couldn't fuck with it. I couldn't fuck with it at all because who are you, who is this for? I don't need to see you gunned down. I don't need to see you reenact this church massacre. In fact, I'm wondering what sort of dissonance you have in your mind in order to be able to do that. Thank you so much for sharing all that with me. You've given me a lot to think
1: about. We'll wrap up with... I'll give you a choice between questions. The first one is what role do you feel artists have in the revolution? Hmm. And the second is... What would you offer to any younger black or brown artists who are working to maintain their practice?
0: Wow. I hear, like, yeah. <laughs> um, the right. artist's role in the revolution. Tony, I think it Tony K. Bumbato who says it's the writer's role or the artist's role to make a revolution irresistible. Mm-hmm. Um, right? And, you know, with my work, it's really difficult because I find myself at a really weird crossroads. I have to interrogate and implicate myself often because I'm at the point now where I actually am not poor anymore. I'm making money from the art. So while the work is still very angry and urgent and pushing people, prodding them towards a revolutionary moment, um, it's also a, a space of art and commerce, which feels really strange for me you know on one hand i want health insurance and i want to be able to eat you know six months ago they were trying to evict me you know so on one hand i want i don't want that reality i don't want a tenuous you know vulnerable reality on the other hand though i think that it's very much the artist's job to as she said to make it to make it irresistible and no matter what my how my position might change in terms of socioeconomic for uh, positionality in terms of class movements. I think I'm. my message will always be, you know, burn this shit down, you know? Even if you need to come for niggas like me, you know, <laughs> like burn, burn it down. Like, I, Like, just like I'm not going to admonish these folks for getting their money, but I do think that it's their responsibility to let you know that these systems are completely unequal that these systems are actually violent and no matter how well the work does in the art worlds or in I'm uh, not in Hollywood but in the indie film world I will always tell you that these systems are violent. the art world is a violent space just like Hollywood and the indie world are violent spaces that are they're industries. We put worlds after them but they're industries and industries are built on you know capitalist exploitative labor, practices and you know, violence. Um, there's a classist, uh, classist hierarchy that exists within all of these systems. I am not at the top of them. So no matter where I am, no matter how well the work does, I'm always going to say to someone like you and to someone like my little sister and to someone you know, my friend, this is still, you know, very rotten to the core. This is capitalism, so it's pimp or be pimped. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is me attempting to pimp this shit for what it's worth, but it needs to go. So the Carmichael Kwame Ture said capitalism is a vicious system. It's a vile system, and it has to go. Now, I'll say that regardless of whether I'm worth, right now I'm worth, what, $8? Black people have a medium income of $8. <laughs> I'm not worth $8, but... I have some savings under my belt now. I'll say that whether I have some savings, right, whether I'm worth five million dollars or whether I'm worth five hundred dollars, capitalism is a vicious system, uh, and it needs to go. So I think it's all, it's the artist's job to tell the truth, regardless of whether they have reached a certain level of success, right? I could be worth as much as Beyonce, but my job is to still tell you. And I'm not supposed to really have this much money. (laughs) This system shouldn't even exist for me to be able to accumulate this much money. So that's my job. This is how I I sleep at night, regardless of whether I'm able to come to Paris or not. Because I'm still going to let you know, yeah, I'm here in Paris with you, um, but I'm beholden to someone as well. Frank Wilderson says I'm still a slave, and I, in many ways, very much agree with him. So yeah, the artist's job in the revolution is to make it irresistible, but also to make it quite plain. And we do that by telling the truth. Baldwin says this as well. Um, And what would I tell a young person? Stay fucking rigorous. I like how the young people are pushing the older people. Like, bitch, I want to be called they. And you're gonna call me they, you know? And you know, they have to deal with it. The dinosaurs will be gone soon. We respect the elders, but I think that the young people have to have respect as well. Because there's a wisdom there as well. You know, I argue with the friend once. she's like, young people aren't wise. You I know, mean, you get wise as you get older. And I'm like, no, there's a wisdom from each position. There's a knowledge that I lose once I get older, because I'm no longer in your shoes. I don't know what it's like to be 23 within this current political moment. You feel what I'm saying? So you have something that you can teach me. You have something you can teach a 75 year old. Um, And we need that, we need those voices. So I would encourage you guys to continue to be rigorous, continue to be loud, continue to be urgent about what you want and what you need for the new and coming world, because it's yours. Motherfuckers have left us with a shitty inheritance. There's a clock now, the shit is winding down. Are we gonna make it? That's That's me and you, we gotta decide that, so. Continue to be rigorous and to be unflinching in the work that you do and the questions that you ask and the demands that you seek from people my age, older, from people your age, and younger.
1: Because this is y'all shit
0: now. These motherfuckers is gonna die soon. Hopefully, we'll make it. (laughs) Amen. I mean, thank you. Thank you. You're really popping. You have good questions. Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) has had her work screened at many film festivals, including the Frameline LGBTQ Film Festival, Edinburgh International Film Festival, Toronto Inside and Out, and Ann Arbor Film Festivals. Her work is part of the Whitney Museum's permanent collection, and she's been shown at many institutions across the U.S., including the MOCA LA, the MoMA, the National Gallery, the Hammer Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the ICA in Boston, and MoMA PS1. She's currently working on a documentary right now with the support of the Sundance Institute. I've included her Instagram and her website in the show notes, so go and check her work out. The music on this episode is by Leil Umaran, as usual. The next episode is going to be a music roundup of Diaspora Babes' sound work. So if you're an artist who makes music or sound art, please send your tracks in for this exciting upcoming episode. Until next Saturday, keep safe, keep faith.